Seltzer Kings podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Seltzer Kings Podcast Network, in cooperation with Fast Eddie's Podcast Hut, present Spooktacular 2020, a celebration of the macabre and the infantile. The horror. The Why the sad face, buddy? Not happy that you're in here on the weekend? <laughs> anyway, I'm going to the bar. Have fun recording your little show, Gavin. Ass. The following podcast will be presented in the Queen's English, articulate, and sans the profane language that all of you seem to enjoy so much. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the What the Hell Were You Thinking podcast, Patreon exclusive, God help me, spooky special for the Spooktacular 2020. I am Gavin St. James, and this is a Patreon special for you, our beloved patrons, created with undying love and devotion. Tonight, we travel to Russia for a tale so strange so horrifying that it has transcended the fall of the Soviet Union and wormed its way maggot-like through a corpse into the collective unconscious of the internet. The incident at Dyatlov Pass. Our story tonight begins in February 1959. Soviet Russia. Ten skiers set out on a journey across the Ural Mountains. Though it was the dead of winter, they were experienced outdoor persons, cross-country skiers and hikers who had completed a similar journey many times before. They were well prepared with equipment, supplies, maps and compasses, all the accoutrement one would need. Their plan was the trip to take no more than two weeks. Yet they had been on their journey for nearly a week when something happened they were not prepared for and it would cost them their lives. Igor Dyatlov, a 23-year-old radio engineering student at the Ural Polytechnic Institute, was the leader, and he assembled a group of nine others for the trip, most of whom were fellow students and peers at the university. It consisted of eight men and two women. Yuri Doroshenko, Lyudmila Dubinia, Grigory Krivonoshenko, Alexander Kolevtov, Zinedia Kolmogrova, Rostov Slobodin, Nikolai Tibedo-Brino, and Semon Zolotaryov, and Yori Yudin. Yori would turn back due to health issues shortly into the trip and is considered the only survivor. Yudin turned back on January 28th and the group pressed forward. Dyatlov told Yudin to expect to hear from them sometime around February 12th, but that it might take a few days longer as the weather was growing worse. 
The weather was not concerning for the group and was actually part of a certification process for achieving an advanced level of accreditation by the Sverdlok City Committee on Physical Culture and Sport. The group's commissole, a youth organization being both political and social clubs, was sponsoring them. When nothing was heard from the group by February 20th, a search was initiated by their parents, first using volunteers and eventually the Soviet military and police. On February 26, the group's final campsite was located several hundred feet above the tree line on the slopes of a mountain named Kolat Siakal, which was a Russian transliteration of the language the aboriginal Mansi people of the area. It means the dead mountain. Their tent had been slashed open from the inside, and their belongings, including shoes and winter coats, remained. Nothing of the hikers themselves was found at their campsites. But nine sets of footprints were found leading away from the shelter of their tent. Nine sets of footprints in the snow of people only in socks or wearing one shoe and some in bare feet. Following the footprints for slightly less than a quarter mile, they stopped beneath the limbs of a large tree and the remains of a small fire. And there they found the bodies of Krivonoshenko and Doroshenko, shoeless and dressed only in their undergarments. The branches of the sheltering pine were broken and bent, as though someone had attempted to climb up to look out, or perhaps escape something from below. Widening their search, rescuers came upon the bodies of Dyatlov, Kolmogorova, and Slobodin, between the fire and the tent. Perhaps they were tempted to return to the tent, or perhaps they never made it to the shelter of the trees. Months more would pass to find the remaining bodies of the lost hikers. They were finally located beneath 13 feet of snow in a ravine less than 100 yards from the pine tree in its tiny fire. Three of the four were dressed better than the others, and there were signs that those who died first had relinquished their clothes to the others. Dubinia was wearing Krivonoshenko's burned and torn trousers, and her left foot and shin were wrapped in a torn jacket. Naturally, an investigation was launched into the incident, an investigation that provided no answers and only left more questions. The bodies of the first five were determined to die of hypothermia, though it was noted that Slobodin had a small crack in his skull that should not have been life-threatening had he survived. It was after the discovery of the remaining four bodies that things truly became bizarre. Three of the hikers had fatal injury. Thibo Brinolius had a major skull damage, Dubinia and Zola Turayov had major chest fractures, and the force required to cause such damage would have been extremely high. They compared it to that of a car crash, though notably, the bodies bore no external wounds associated with such bone fractures. And all four bodies found at the bottom of the creek in running water had soft tissue damage to their head and face. For example, Dubinia was missing her tongue, eyes, and part of her lips, 
as well as facial tissue and a fragment of the skull bone, while Zolotaryov had his eyeballs missing, and Alexander Kolotvatov was missing his eyebrows. Now, certainly such mutilations are consistent with bodies found in the wild and in the water, yet these bodies were not exposed to the elements. Indeed, they were frozen solid in deep, deep snow, and the small creek they were found in would be frozen solid in February when they died. Though the bodies in the ravine were found as the thaw began, the snow above them was undisturbed, and the creek still quite shallow as the runoff was only beginning. There were other inconsistencies reported. The outlaw's bodies displayed injuries consistent with defensive wounds, as though he had attempted to fight off an attack, and abrasions around his ankles that seemed to indicate that they had been restrained with ropes. Yuri Krivnoshenko, whose body was found beneath the pine, reportedly had burns to his legs, burns that appeared to have been intentionally inflicted, as though someone had pressed a burning faggot to them. Strangest of all, Yuri had bitten off a piece of his own finger, and the flesh was still in his mouth when he was found. Zenadia Kolmogorova lay nearby, and from the position of her body, it seemed as if she had been desperately trying to scramble back uphill towards the tent. There was a long, bright red bruise on the right side of her torso that looked as though it might have been caused by a baton. Investigators sifted through the group's diaries and journals and found nothing ominous in the entries leading up to the night in question. They also recovered cameras and film they were using to document the trip. Film that would later open yet another mysterious door into their fates. Despite lingering questions, the incident was ruled an accidental death by, quote, a compelling natural force, unquote. In May of 1959, and all documents pertaining to the incident were consigned to a secret Soviet government archive. Yet questions lingered, and questions were dangerous in the Soviet Union, and the incident was sealed for decades until suddenly the Soviet Union was no more, and surviving family members and even some of the investigators themselves brought the incident back to the light of day. In 1990, Lev Ivanov, one of the original police investigators in 1959, published an article that included his admission that the investigation team had no rational explanation for the incident. He also stated, after his team reported that they had seen flying spheres, he then received direct orders from high-ranking regional officials to dismiss this claim. Other researchers attribute the incident to secret Soviet military experiments, including nuclear testing, citing that one of the bodies had been found with abnormal levels of radiation on his clothing and in his tissue. Supporting all of this were numerous stories of lights in the sky and mysterious fireballs seen over the mountain prior to, after, and on the night of their presumed disappearance which could be either Soviet military or perhaps unidentified flying objects. God. 
This case was reopened officially in 2019, and the results were issued by the Russian government in July of 2020. And although only three possible explanations were being considered, an avalanche, a snow slab avalanche, or a hurricane of wind, and the possibility of a crime occurring is officially discounted by the Russian government. Could it have been an avalanche? It was. It certainly seems the most plausible explanation until you factor in certain key elements. There were no signs of an avalanche when the campsite was found. None of the telltale marks of snow flowing around the area. The bodies found near the tent were known only covered by a thin layer of snow, implying a large movement of a snow layer did not happen. Hundreds of expeditions in the area since have taken place in similar conditions and not a single avalanche has been documented. The ground where the tent was located was specifically chosen by members of the group, all of whom were highly experienced mountaineers and skiers who knew about avalanche and how to avoid them, so if there were an avalanche, you would avoid the ground where the tent was pitched. Also, the footprints leading away from the tent were not the mad dash of panicked people fleeing an avalanche, but consistent with a group of people specifically seeking the shelters of the tree line below, not running from a wall of snow. So... Could there have been an avalanche? Yes. But it is the most likely explanation. I think not. It was. What about catabatic winds? What is that you might ask? It's a science sudden and violent windstorm that is possible in terrain similar to the dead mountain. It came howling down the slope, forcing the hikers from their tent due to the danger of its collapse and forcing them to cut their way out and then down the slope into the shelter of the trees. The hikers attempted to build shelters in the tree line. One of them perhaps collapsed upon them, causing their injuries and the others dying of exposure. Or perhaps another kind of wind, it generated a terrifying phenomenon known as infrasound. Wind going around Kolatsiakal created a Karman vortex, which can produce infrasound capable of inducing panic attacks in human beings. Because of their panic, the hikers were driven to leave the tent by whatever means necessary, flee down the slopes, and by the time they'd got further down the hill, where they would have been out to the infrasound's path, they would have regained their composure, but in the darkness would be unable to return to the shelter. The traumatic injuries suffered by three of the victims were the result of their stumbling over the ledge of ravine in the darkness and landing on rocks at the bottom. So... Would it have been a mighty wind coming down the mountain? Possibly. Some speculate that the Nine found themselves in the middle of a military exercise where the army was dropping what were called parachute mines. A bomb that is dropped into the area and then detonated above ground, sending pressure waves that would account for the internal injuries of some of the group without the external bruising and indicators of said injuries. This could also explain the strange glowing lights seen in the areas and some of the external injuries found on the bodies like burns and abrasions. And the Soviet army did test such weapons in the area before and after the incident. Others say it was radiological weapons being tested which provide an explanation for the unusual radiation found on only one of the bodies. But alas, there was no other reported radiation exposure in the areas or on any of the other bodies or their belongings. 
At the time, authorities very much wanted to attribute the incident to an attack by the Monsi tribe indigenous to the area. A BBC article, my old employer, said of the suspicion, quote, at the time of the deaths, accusing figures were initially pointed to the only other people living in the region, the Monsi. One of 45 indigenous peoples living in Russia, the Monsi have survived over the centuries by hunting, fishing, and reindeer herding. Soviet investigators were convinced we Monsi must have killed them. So many people around here were arrested, and a woman from another village who was no longer with us used to say that the secret police tortured them. I don't know if that's true, but they certainly were interrogated for weeks. Eventually, the Soviet authorities were unable to find any incriminating evidence. Suspicions still linger about the Monsi's possible involvement. One book published in 2015 suggests that the Monsi hunters were high on magic mushrooms used in shamanic rituals and went berserk when they found the students had wandered onto sacred Monsi land, unquote. Yet the Monsi dinners now were peaceful people who simply wanted to avoid trouble with the state, and the state tended to want to civilize indigenous people, and murdering a group of hikers would draw highly unwanted attention to the, pe to the Monsi people and result in their relocation or even extermination. And that was to be avoided at all costs. And if the NKVD, the Soviet internal police, couldn't find any evidence or even fabricate evidence linking the Monsi people to the incident, it just wasn't there. So no, the Monsi did not do this. So, what about those bright spheres, so commonly sighted over the mountains and seen in association with the incident? Could we look to our old friends, dear God, the aliens as an explanation? It is certainly possible, no it isn't, as we learn from this month's spectacular, where Dave told us about disappearances in remote mountainous terrain and how it's a hot spot for abductions and attacks, which it isn't. But perhaps we are looking too far afield for an explanation. We definitely are. And perhaps we should be looking closer to home and the very mountains where this transpired. Perhaps we could look to the very images taken by the group on their trip of the Yeti. We know from their journal entries that the Yatlov 9 were interested and aware of the Yeti. Citing from one of their own journals, quote, Lately, there's been a lively discussion about the existence of Yeti in scientific circles. According to the latest data, Yeti live in the northern Urals near Otorten Mountain, unquote. And, what is more, a single black and white image the very tall, shaggy humanoid among the trees was among the films recovered at the site of the incident. Yetis, my friend. Yetis are no joke. God, yes, they are. Citing from the Pravda News Service, quote, Could a Yeti kill tourists in Dyatlov Pass? A renowned doctor is not named, but he claimed that the broken ribs of Seyman Zolotorov and Ludmila Dubininia were the result of the squeezing of their chefs by some big creature. Afraid of being mocked, the famous doctor asked not to disclose the name, unquote. This was reported in Pravda, and if you can't trust Pravda, who can you trust? Of course, Yeti is just a word and not what the Monsi people would say of the creatures and spirits who roam the slopes of the dead mountain. They would call it a mink. 
In the Conti epics, the Mink are presented as formidable forest spirits. The Mink are described as taller than human, heavily built with thick fur and large feet. According to legend, the Mink are nearly unkillable, as they are protected by the mountain gods, and one must use trickery as the only way to slay a Mink, as their eyes cannot look down. They must be tricked into the river and attacked from beneath the surface. Could a mink, the so-called Russian Yeti, have killed the Dyatlov 9? Certainly, according to a 2019 documentary on the Discovery Channel, Russian Yeti, the killer lives. God, what happened to the Discovery Channel? In which Yeti export Igor Burstev of the International Center of Hominology, which is a thing that just should not exist, the world's leading expert on the Russian Yeti, having dedicated his life to search for this creature. Burstev, 73, says he has mountains of evidence suggesting the creature's existence in the Ural Mountains, but nobody wants to see them. Can't imagine why. Based on his research, Burstev says the Russian Yeti is most notable for its large feet. God, they have a bigger foot than a human, and they have short necks, almost without necks, he said on the show. The footprints are everywhere, and for the last 50 years, I find signs of the Yetis confirmed by reports of eyewitnesses. There are 5,000, that's a huge number of sightings, for a creature that supposedly doesn't exist, says Burstev. God damn. I don't know if you made me swear. Did a mank come down from the mountains to wreak a terrible revenge on the ill-fated Nime who dared to cross into its territory? The wounds on those found in the ravine are consistent with reported Yeti attacks, and the only people who know for sure aren't talking. We may never know, or there may yet be unseen files in deep old Soviet archives with the truth on the information of the Dyatlov Pass 9. All we can say for sure is, despite what people say, this and the Yuba County 5 are nothing alike. Nothing at all. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This has been a spooky special. Good God. Can't believe I'm in here on my day off working on this. Exclusive content for our Patreon subscribers and part of the inanely named Spooktacular 2020. First of all, it's not an original name, and second of all, it's just not a word. Thank you all for your continued and inexplicable support that makes this podcast possible. I am Gavin St. James, the unwilling participant in this in entire charade. I'm a man of science. I don't believe in any of this, and this entire month has offended me to the core of my being. I went to Oxford for God's sakes. Speaking for Dave Bledsoe and all the fictional manks on this podcast, we want to say don't go into the mountains in winter. Honestly, did the Donner Party not teach you people anything? You Americans are utter idiots. Sorry. Sorry, this this entire thing has just got me very much riled up. Thank you for listening, 
and stay. According to the words of the script that I am instructed, I must read verbatim or risk being fired. Stay spooky. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.